As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's weekend review, we're going to be taking a look at the weekend that was in the Premier League in Germany, Spain, Italy, and in Major League Soccer. An obvious disclaimer up front, we will not be joined by Ryan Bailey today or for the rest of the week. He and his family are, much like most of the Manchester United team this past weekend, out to sea. However, he has asked me to read the following statement just so people playing TSS Bingo at home get their week off to a good start. Here you go. While I was seated in the cruise ship's Hard Rock Cafe watching Wimbledon play Charlotte (laughs) while an acoustic cover of Oasis plays, I sipped my all-caramel caramel caramel macchiato and thought fondly of my TSS friends and Graham. Uh, He also wanted me to work in fancy people who live near his relatives, a comment about tennis, and a reminder that Italian infrastructure (laughs) is crumbling, but I won't be doing that. Instead, with that bit of housekeeping done, let's turn our attention to the Premier League to do so. I'm joined by two gentlemen who both know better than to rile up Antonio Conte. Up first, Joe Lowry, the obvious question. How much would you have to be paid to get into a physical altercation with Antonio Conte? Uh, a decent amount. Like, yeah. like it, it, we're talking at least four figures. That mm-hmm. might even be a little low. I, I'm struggling to understand the, the, the reasoning behind Thomas Tuchel's desire mm-hmm. to, hold, uh, to hold Antonio Conte's hand for pretty much any longer than he has to. You're, you're the team that just, that just gave up a couple of points at the end, first of all. So it's not like you're really riding a momentum high at that point. Maybe you're riding an ego. I, I just don't understand it at all. So, Taylor, to answer your question, yeah, four figures plus. All right. A, th- a thousand bucks and Joe will slap Antonio Conte. Graham, <laughs> similar question. Would you rather fight an angry lion, but you get that chair that they sometimes get to use, or fight Antonio Conte, but your only weapon is that baseball hat that Thomas Tuchel was wearing? I'll I'll fight the lion even without the chair instead of Antonio Conte. <laughs> he I'm, does similar, seem... I'm, I'm the yeah, same as ahead. Joe. I can't understand why you would ever get into a fight with Antonio Conte. I mean, there's 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 not even a doubt that Conte would win in that fight with Tuchel, right? No that's, that's, doubt. That's not on any. He question. doesn't need ketchup, man. So of course he's gonna win. That's the edge. <laughs> 
Uh, for those who have no idea what we're talking about, uh, Chelsea manager Thomas Tuchel, Spurs manager Antonio Conte clashed a couple different times during and after their side's 2-2 draw at Stamford Bridge. Joe, of the many incidents they had and of all the tactics we saw and the interesting substitutions and tactical wrinkles, was Handshake Gate the highlight of your weekend? Oh, 100%. Well, maybe not the highlight of my whole weekend, but at least the soccer watching part of my weekend. It was, it was the highlight. There's no doubt about it. I watched the first half. And then I came back to the game and watched the second half. And the first half, in my opinion, was pretty dull. It, was, it wasn't super open. There wasn't a lot going on. There was some tactical stuff that I did find interesting that we can talk about later. But I come back thinking, all right, we'll settle in for the second half. Hopefully, you know, we'll get a little bit more action. And my, my wish was granted, gentlemen, because the second half was wild. Not only did we get a few goals, but you also have multiple back and forth between Conte and Tuchel. Again, not really sure what, what Tommy Tuchel is thinking in some of those moments, but, you know, fair, fair play to him. If he wants to give us this sort of petty entertainment, I am all about it. Yeah, I, I saw him run to do the, uh, the goal celebration, I think, when they went ahead 2-1. to one. And was just like, all right, fair play to him. He's running to celebrate in front of the supporters. I did not realize until we got the replay that he had run past Antonio Conte to do that. That felt like a, a recipe for getting murdered, Graham. Yeah, and, and the worrying thing for Thomas Tuchel is that Antonio Conte uh, Instagrammed about yeah. it later that evening. So Conte is clearly already working on something for that February mm-hmm. rematch against uh, against Chelsea. I'd be concerned if I was Tuchel. I, I would have some security for that game if I was him. Yeah, I think that that's probably a fair way to go. I would have several security. Antonio Conte has one dude who just straight up looks like a Bond villain enforcer in the background. <laughs> and when they're wearing the all-black shirts with the all-black pants, it really does sort of add to that aesthetic. So I would not mess with Antonio Conte or his Bond villain squad behind him. But Graham, as Joe sort of, sort of already alluded to, this game will probably be remembered for the uh, managerial scrap as well as for some questionable officiating. We'll talk about that. But this game did have some fascinating elements to it in a sort of soccer as chess perspective. Yeah, so this match in general was everything I I hoped it would be. You have two ambitious teams who are trying to to bridge the gap to to City and Liverpool. So they're kind of in a similar place at this moment in time. You have two headstrong managers and then you have a rivalry folded into it all. And in the end, I think Tottenham were the happier of of the two teams. They were the more reactive team um they trailed twice in the match and they and they trailed in pretty much all of the st- statistics and they were obviously away from home as well so naturally it feels like this is a better result for them but another reason i found this match so interesting was the the tactical side of it the fact that chelsea and tottenham on paper at least they set up in, in a similar way both started with a, a back three they both looked to the wing backs for for width they both had double pivots in midfield then a, a front three with a front man who who likes to drop deep and help out in possession so there was a, lo- a lot of overlap between the the two teams there was some discussion before the match about whether Chelsea would actually be set up in a back four because the inclusion of Ruben Loftus cheek was a was a little bit confusing. I was I was working this game and so trying to work out before kickoff where he was going to play was was not easy, and um, because obviously he's not a wing back by trade, but that's where he played in this match. So it was still a back three for Chelsea with with wing backs, and um, I thought the use of Loftus cheek in particular was was an interesting ploy by by Tuchel, and it, it spoke to the respect that he has for for Tottenham under Conte. The reason reason Tuchel wanted a player like Loftus-Cheek at right wing back was because he recognised the, the need to defend with five against Spurs because they like to attack with five. They push Sessignon, Sessignon and, and Emerson Royale so far up the pitch that it, it creates overloads for them and it, it opens up a free man. But the, the inclusion of Loftus-Cheek 
kind of guarded against that by playing playing him at, at wing back, but it also allowed Chelsea to change shape shape in possession, and he was pushed inside to link up with Jorginho and N'Golo Kante and Mason Mount and give Chelsea a bit more control and then vacate the space for Reese James to, to get around the outside as the wide man. The, the, I think the term for this, and this is a fairly new term, so I'm rolling this out for the, for the first time, but I think it's what's known as a box midfield. I heard people say Brighton used that very effectively against Manchester United and it looked like Chelsea were were trying to do that as well. And what it means is they, ha- they basically had four in the middle against the Spurs too. And I thought in terms of the possession and the territory, that was that was very telling and, and particularly the first half performance from Chelsea where yeah. they were very dominant in terms of their use of the ball but as I think we'll, we'll talk about a little bit more and I'll, and I'll pass the mic because I've been speaking for a while they're, they're, they're cutting edge in the final third it, it maybe felt like they were lacking a little bit in ideas but in, in terms of their use of the ball they were very much the dominant team for, for large periods of this game and they, they were dominating possession as well they, they had a 70-30 possession advantage in the 60th minute Chelsea were, were smothering Tottenham with the ball which Honestly, I don't think Tottenham have a, a big problem with. With the quality they have in that squad, they are capable of possessing, and they can do some damage with damage with the ball. And we even saw Harry Kane get, I thought, a little more involved in the second half and get a few more influential touches, if not actually more touches in that second 45. But Chelsea, Graham, you walked through some of the, the fun stuff on the right with Ruben Loftus-Cheek and with Reese James. It's, it's funny because those players had a, a pretty big impact on the game, certainly. But I thought a lot of Chelsea's best progression, even in that midfield overload, came through Mason Mount and his positioning on the left side. He was just dropping in as a number eight and, and finding space on the left side and the left half space or, or dropping in a little more centrally. And because of the numbers that Chelsea pushed into midfield, he had moments Mount did to get on the ball and turn and go forward. Now, it was a little difficult because Romero would step out of Tottenham's back line, and there's an advantage to playing with three center backs is that you can push one of those forward, but then that leaves space in their back line, and Raheem Sterling could run in behind, and it was a nice blueprint and and, an initial execution that Chelsea had set for themselves. I thought, though, after they had created the space for some of those advantages, and this is part of why I thought the first half just wasn't quite as, as electric as it could have been given the talent, after Chelsea had created those advantages, the technical execution just really wasn't there to to actually find the next move and create something in the final third. And by the time Chelsea did then advance into that final third, Tottenham had nine players behind the ball. And they were perfectly happy sitting in a low block, then trying to win the ball and attack on the break. And credit to Chelsea, they didn't let Tottenham do a ton of really dangerous transition attacking in this game. There were moments, certainly. But I, I thought that... that that dichotomy almost between how good Thomas Tuchel's tactical setup was and maybe how at times the team struggled to execute is a big reason behind why this thing ended 2-2. Graham, do you have any thoughts on what uh, Thomas Tuchel... By the way, I keep forgetting like briefly which team Antonio Conte currently manages. Uh, but Thomas <laughs> Tuchel's Chelsea. Uh, are there things that Tuchel could have done to maybe be more effective in the attack to to get some goals when they were so ball-dominant? I thought there was an, an over-reliance on crosses at times. Mm-hmm. So so Chelsea attempt, attempted 23 crosses in this match and, and completed just four of them. And, and there was a consistent pattern of, of them keeping hold of the ball very effectively and waiting for a space to open up. And it didn't a lot of the time. Spurs were very good at making sure that those spaces didn't open up. So kind of running out of ideas, Chelsea would just flip a, a cross into the box and okay, Kai Havertz isn't terrible in there. I think Chelsea from set pieces have a lot of aerial threat because they get Thiago Silva up and Koulibaly as, as a threat. Obviously, he scores the opener, not with his head, but nonetheless, he's, he has a threat in the opposition box. But from, from open play, the Chelsea attack isn't really built to make the most of those opportunities. 
ironically, it might have been if Lukaku was still around, but he but he isn't in that team anymore. And I have mixed thoughts on this Chelsea attack as it stands because I think in terms of profile, Tuchel has the sort of front line that, that he wanted for Chelsea this summer. There, there isn't a, a recognised number nine, although I suspect that Havertz over time probably yeah, will become definitely. that player. But he wants a front line of nimble, versatile attackers who can contribute all all areas of the game. He wants forwards who can press from the front. And I thought Havertz, Mount and Sterling did that in this match and they're all capable of doing that. But to be reductive about it for a moment, I, I, I just have concerns about the number of goals that that front line, get, front line gives you. Sterling is maybe the only one that you would count on getting over 15 goals in a season. And Chelsea's defence is really prolific when it scores to, uh, comes to scoring goal. I think Rhys James now has the the most goal involvements uh, of any Premier League defender since the start of last season. Koulibaly is a threat, Thiago Silva is a threat, uh, Cucurella I think will be a threat and and Chilwell scored a few last season as well. I I just wonder how sustainable it is to rely on your defenders for goals, especially when Kante and Jorginho are not offering much of a a goal threat with the exception of penalties for Jorginho. So, I understand that Tuchel's Chelsea have always been strongest when their defence is strong, so maybe maybe it's not much of an issue. Maybe he's not concerned about that, but it is certainly something to consider. And I thought, as well as Chelsea played in this match, and for me, they they definitely had the better of the of of the game. Their their attack their their attack still feels like they're figuring some things out, which is maybe natural given there's been a bit of a, a reshuffle there. But I, it, 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 they they did well in some parts, but not so well in others. I think there's certainly room for Tuchel to be more aggressive with his 11, right? I mean, I think this was true after the Everton game. I think this was true for stretches of last season as well. And it's hard to criticize because he, he took them to a Champions League final and won with a, a relatively conservative approach with back three, uh, a double pivot that that isn't going to absolutely obliterate you in the final third. They're going to help you get there and help you retain the ball and defend, but aren't really going to do a ton of dangerous creating in that last stretch of the field. I think in, in this game, I was reminded again, especially in the first half when it felt like Chelsea weren't making a, t- a ton of progress to create meaningful chances. There's opportunity for them to drop a center back or to, in this game, put Ruben Loftus-Cheek in midfield and, and just be more aggressive with your positioning from the start and maybe shift to a back four. And it wouldn't surprise me if we see that at some point this season. I think it's going to take more for Tuchel to actually shift. But I, I think this Chelsea team can be so much more dangerous and, and having someone like Christian Pulisic, although I'm, I'm still perfectly happy to see him come off the bench for just the, the garbage hmm. time towards the end of games. I got no issue with that. But I, I think there's room for this team to be more aggressive with their personnel. And if that happens, I think we'll see certainly a more entertaining Chelsea team. I think we might even see a better Chelsea team. But I don't think Tuchel's ready to make that change right now. And, and honestly, I don't think he, he really needs to at this point. Joe, for people who are new to the show uh, or only listen, listen like halfway and are now surprised by what you've just said, why, again, are you okay with Christian Pulisic only getting like 10 minutes at the end of a game? And why does it relate to Carbonite? <laughs> yeah, so so I have this this theory that was helped out by Graham and Taylor, although I don't think really either one of them agrees with me, but it doesn't matter. They still helped anyway. It's this idea that for, for the U.S. men's national team's injured players, and I'm not the only one who's banging this drum either, but it, it's it's something that, you know, Tyler Adams and Christian Pulisic and Weston McKenney can't seem to stay healthy. Sergio Des kind of fits into that category too, as does Gio Reyna. This core can't stay healthy. 
and having them sit on the bench in in important games or just most games for their club teams leading into the November World Cup seems like a pretty good way to make sure that they're as healthy as possible heading into November. You run into a few issues with with match (laughs) fitness, and these players are important enough that they will play. Even if they're not regular starters, there's enough games in Europe that they're still going to be playing, and they're still going to be just fine when it comes to fitness. So I'm not really concerned about that. I am concerned about Christian Pulisic's adductor and his abductor and his hamstring and whatever else he's hurt over the years. So yeah, 10 minutes at the end of games for Christian Pulisic works just fine for me. Let's face it. Sitting on the Chelsea bench is still probably better for Christian Pulisic than a loan to Everton, which seems to be con- consistently <laughs> brought up as maybe the option for Christian Pulisic. So yeah, sit, sit tight at Stamford Bridge, Christian, if that is the other option available to you. Yeah, alone to Everton, ah, alone to Man United, ah, like, <laughs> just avoid, just stay on the bench, just stay wrapped in carbonite, you'll be fine. Uh, if Pulisic is not the one creating chances and scoring goals, then uh, as we've already suggested, it may well be their defenders. One thing that I thought was really fascinating from this game was uh, Koulibaly obviously gets the, the lovely out-of-the-air volley, that's always a beautiful thing to see, but then maybe a couple minutes later, like not, not, more than 10 minutes later, he has another one where he goes for sort of that overhead kick uh, that he that he puts over. Uh, Kai Havertz gets an, an, an open header, would have gotten an open header. I think the ball gets cleared by the first defender. If not, Havertz is open in the middle. And I was really flummoxed as to why these very obvious set-piece targets kept being left open. And a thing that Chelsea, I think, do naturally, but also seem to be doing because of the way Tottenham were defending in their sort of zone, it seems like Tottenham's ta- uh, defenders are tasked with defend your zone. If somebody comes into it, then you kind of aggressively step and make sure you're in front of them. But if they're not yet in your zone, you hold position. And so Chelsea would put somebody on the back post, and then right as the there would always be the dummy taker, and then usually Mark Cucurella would actually take the free kick. And as the dummy taker went that far post runner would make a quick darting run towards the middle and hold there to wait to then attack the ball so that no zone was engaged nobody picked them up and Chelsea regularly got open looks in that first half Mm. I think Spurs did a better job of it in the second but a little bit of a master set piece theater there from Chelsea on a weekend where that was featured in a couple different leagues yeah the the other thing that was pointed out by JJ Bull on uh, Tifo's YouTube channel was that um, Chelsea were, were were playing outswinging corner kicks and that Tottenham were clearly set up to mm-hmm. defend the inswinger because Chelsea haven't had Cucurella to take corner kicks up until now. And so when, or from the left side at least, they were outswinging from from Cucurella. And so Tottenham for that Koulibaly goal, they're all they're all bunched towards the to the near post because that is where Chelsea's free, uh, corner kicks have been directed in the in their first ga- uh, game this season that they played against Everton. And Cucurella comes into the team, and all of a sudden that's different. So that that was another curveball that that Tuchel threw in there. Joe, we've talked a lot about Chelsea, the tactics, uh, what they can do to improve them. Uh, for you, you said it earlier, I think Antonio Conte was probably okay to not have as much of the ball. Yeah. I think he talked a little bit about how this is a game that they need uh, to be able to grow into the rest of their season. And I think is frustrated, but ultimately aware that Chelsea were probably the better team. Spurs able to get the point there at the end. But are there things that you enjoyed or didn't enjoy from Tottenham overall? I mean, I I enjoyed watching them press Chelsea in specific moments. And that's not just in a standard high press, although they did do some of that. It's even those little moments where you're trying to nick the ball off of Jorginho. And that's where a goal comes from for Tottenham. It's moments where they're pressing up aggressively out of the mid-block. And and they weren't flawless. And I I already kind of detailed Mason Mount finding free space on the left side. And Graham talked about some of Chelsea's movement on the right. And that did destabilize Tottenham. But man, this team is aggressive. And I think they're one of the most fun teams, certainly in England, to watch press 
and, and to watch how aggressively they pressed. From the minute this game kicked off, the energy was at 100, right? It was extremely aggressive from the start. And that's entertaining to watch. It's not like Tottenham are going to dominate possession against the other big teams in England. I'd, I'd wager that by the time the season ends, they'll have less possession than every other big six team. But they're going to be dangerous defensively, and they're going to be exciting defensively. The other thing I already mentioned is Harry Kane. I think he is incredibly fun to watch. He's so good at basically everything. So in the second half, I mentioned he starts to get a few more meaningful touches he springs Son in behind in the 48th minute, and, it, and uh, Son can't quite finish. I don't think the pass is perfect, but it's a great moment that shows what Kane can do as a distributor in midfield, and that's become more and more of his role over the last few seasons. And then about 10 minutes later, this is the 61st minute, Kane turns and breaks him behind himself. He sees the space, he stays on side, and he gets him behind. And then he fast forward towards the end of this game, and there's some hair-pulling controversy around this time and other refereeing issues earlier on in that second half. Taylor, I'll let you walk through some of that stuff. But then he, he scores the equalizer with a header. I mean, Harry Kane can score. This is not news. Harry Kane can distribute and create. That's not news either. But, man, watching him play in a functional Tottenham team is is genuinely enjoyable. Uh, yes, uh, a functional Tottenham team that ended with 11 players, which maybe was surprising for a moment there because we thought the Romero uh, hair pull on Gucurea could justify a red card. VAR said otherwise. Graham, Joe mentioned that the energy to this game was aggressive from the jump, mm-hmm. that it was pretty high intensity. And I would agree with that. I think uh, the officiating crew started to let a lot of stuff go. I think there were some robust challenges that it felt like a derby. So yeah, we're just going to let some things go. Do you feel like that factors into some of the way this game played out in terms of those controversial decisions? Because I would argue both Spurs goals uh, are preempted by moments that maybe should have negated them. I think it was definitely a factor, and that has been uh, a theme in the Premier League this, this season. I know we're, we're only two match days in to the to the new season, but this was something that the referees were, were briefed about by the PGMOL, that they wanted to let things flow a little bit more. And it's interesting, I've just, I, I just read before we started recording that Conte and Tuchel were the only two Premier League managers out of the 20 not to attend the referee briefing before the start of the season, in which they would have learned that referees are going to let more things go this season. So I thought that was just a, an interesting little wrinkle that maybe they didn't get the memo and maybe that contributed to why they were so riled up throughout the whole match. In terms of the officiating, I, I only really have an issue with one decision, to be honest. I know there's the, the tackle from Bentoncourt on, um, on Havertz but just yep. before Chelsea score the first goal. That could be a foul. I could also argue it, it isn't a foul as well. So I, I'm, not, I'm not too bothered. I think that's a subjective decision by the referee. The one that has obviously been the subject of the most focus is, as you say, the, the hair pull on Cucurella. The confusing thing for me is VAR, and maybe this is just down to the way that VAR is used... Um, and there are some inconsistencies with VR in terms of when you're allowed to use it, use it and what you're allowed to use it for. So VR, as far as I'm aware, checked that that incident for a red card right. and decided that it wasn't a red card. Now, I, I could maybe understand that. Maybe that isn't a red card offence. I think it probably is a red card offence, but let's yep. just say for argument's sake that it isn't. But is that then not a foul? Because the VR is used to check it for a, re- a red card offence. Should If... If the VR and the officials decide that, okay, it's not a red card offence, but it is an offence, should the foul not be given in that instance? That's where my confusion comes from, is, is about when you use it and how you use it. It's like 
It's like it's like I accidentally wrecked Graham's car, and then like there's CCTV footage of it. Oh, but like he didn't deliberately wreck it, so all yeah. is good. It's like no, I mean the car's still wrecked. Like I, exactly. I like something here. Like Taylor, you're yeah, off no, the hook. Don't don't look a gift horse in the mouth here. You are off the hook, man. <laughs> good, good call, Joe. Never mind, Graham, in your face. It's your fault. But yeah, that that's there were those sort of moments where I, I would argue the one on uh, Havertz. I think the commentators uh, here in the U.S. were pointing out that. Um, it's Bentoncourt who goes in for that tackle, doesn't get it, I think pretty clearly gets just to Havertz's feet, and gets up to walk away the way a guilty player does when they're expecting yeah. to be booked, and then sort of is like, oh, all right then. But again, that's not a thing that VAR is going to look at unless it was maybe a, a potential red card or something like that. So There's, there's also those... a, a large passage of play, I think, between that moment and Spurs actually yeah. putting the ball in, in the back of the net. So I, I, I have less complaints about that one, but the hair pool for certain. And I'm and I agree with you. I, like it almost feels a little bit like if that is a player with short hair, it is given as a red card. But they all like that's like I'm not even saying that's an excuse. It just seems like that <laughs> seems to have been. It's like well, you know, his hair's all over the place. It's yeah. tough to know. If it's it your was fault for having that hair. Yeah, right. And it's just like no, I don't. A, a little little bit of victim blaming there, folks. Like that's <laughs> definitely a hair pull that tugged him back. Like he knew what he was doing. Romero thought he'd get away with it. So to me, yeah, that should have been a red card. But it is that weird moment of well, it's not a red card, so I, I guess no foul. Play on. Oh. And you equalize. That must be fun for you. Uh, Tom, like Thomas Ducal, why are you screaming in my face again? Oh, I see. I see what's happened here. So a a controversial end to that game with lots of drama in it, which is kind of what we love when it comes to these big Premier League games. Anything else uh, from Chelsea to Tottenham 2? I love Koulibaly. The end. <laughs> he did, Man, that, that left side for Chelsea, suddenly pretty unplayable because you've got Koulibaly just wrecking people and stepping in winning challenges, but also so good in the air. Can also play the ball very quick. You've got Kukurea next to him. Uh, Chelsea with some good signings this summer. Not a thing that I was fully expecting given I, where they were a couple months ago. And I would also highlight a Spurs signing who I was exciting to, excited to see come off the bench in the second half for Charleston mm-hmm. And just this, was, this is maybe a slightly intangible thing, but this game... And just the atmosphere around it kind of said to me that Tottenham under Conte are a big team and a big club all of a sudden. Just the fact they're able to they bring off Richarlison uh, off the bench, who for any other team pretty much in the Premier League, besides maybe City and Liverpool, would be a, would be a starter. And then just also the, the tension and the fieriness and Conte, you know, firing up his team and, and Tottenham not being Tottenham for once and not being the team that folds but actually being the team that gets the, the last minute goal that maybe they don't deserve it just it just says to me I, I, I don't want to get too carried away with myself because only two two mm-hmm. games in this season but Tottenham feel different as a yep. team this season I think we we all had them in our top four right I think so, yeah. I think the the, the major difference between Coes was Arsenal or Chelsea in that fifth or fourth spot versus fifth spot. And I I was Arsenal in fourth, Chelsea in fifth. I, I feel less confident about that prediction, not because Chelsea, Arsenal have been poor. We'll talk about them later on. They've been quite good. I think it's going to be five teams sort of separating themselves for that top four spot. And then I think there will be a little bit of a gap and then the rest of the teams and then a bigger gap and then a certain Manchester team. <laughs> uh, we will talk about them maybe uh, in just a little bit. First, let's take one break, then we'll come back to talk more Premier League. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. We are staying in the Premier League. Joe Lowry, let's talk some leads. Uh, they go up 2-0 uh, over Southampton. All is right in the world. Things are looking good. And then Southampton pull two goals back, proving the old, I guess, American adage that 2-0 is the worst scoreline, even though I think 1-0 is probably worse than that. Uh, do you feel like there are some positives here or maybe some things we learned about Jesse Marsh in this game? Yes to both of those things. Okay. So in terms of positives, I think it's that Leeds was the better team for the first 60 minutes of this game. They were on top of Southampton. They created the better chances and more chances. And then as the game wears on, oh, I, I also should mention, yeah, you get Adams in the double pivot again. You have Brendan Aronson in the front three underneath the number nine again. All that's great. They're both playing. They both seem to be starters from the jump for Leeds United, which is not a big surprise, but still good to see. Uh, and then as the second half wears on, I think Leeds run out of gas a little bit. And this to me is a learning experience. Not that Jesse Marsh doesn't know this and know how to manage his squad. He knows that far better than any of us. So I, I don't want to dwell on this too much, but the subs come really late for Leeds. And it felt like to me that they that they ran out of gas and let Southampton advance and they ultimately let them back into this game with two goals. Arebo scores in the 72nd minute and then Walker Peters in the 81st minute. And all of a sudden it's 2-2. And even after it's 2-2, Southampton still have the better of the play. And so it's Leeds just hanging on for a point instead of trying to secure all three points on the road, which they really should have been able to do. So the first sub in this game for Leeds came way back in the 28th minute when Patrick Bamford has to come on, uh, come off, excuse me. So Marsh does make one change there, but he still has other options and other other moments to make changes. The next sub for Jesse Marsh doesn't come until all the way in the 84th minute. So it's after Southampton have scored not once, but twice. Jack Harrison comes off, and then he makes one more sub four minutes later from Mark Roca in the 88th minute. I thought it was a little slow. I'm guessing Jesse Marsh now, if you asked him, would, would probably agree. I'm sure there was a plan, an idea behind not changing things until later on in the match, but ultimately didn't work out for Leeds. Still, Four points from from two games against teams that are in a roughly similar tier in the Premier League. I mean, that's that's a good start to the season for Leeds. Six points would have been a great start. Four points is still, in my opinion, a good start for Leeds United. Uh, Joe, if you could, can you just please say America for me real quick? America. <laughs> all right, Graham, now that we've covered all those bases when it comes to lead, are, Leeds, are there any non-American things you'd like to talk about when it comes to Leeds United? Joe, yes. well done on that America pronunciation. <laughs> Thank you, Taylor. Thank you. <laughs> so obviously there's been a lot of talk about Tyler Adams and, and Brendan Aronson, which is understandable given which way this, this podcast leans, but I'm, I'm interested in how Marsh gets more out of Rodrigo this season. So Rodrigo was a, a huge signing for Leeds two years ago. I was very surprised that they were able to get him. Six months before he moved to Leeds, it seemed like he was going to Barcelona. So that kind of tells you how he was seen in La Liga. Unfortunately, I don't think we've seen the best of him in the Premier League so far, but it seems like Marsh is doing more to get him into goal-scoring positions. Now, some of the context here is that Patrick Banford does come off in this game, and so Rodrigo is pushed slightly further forward. But even before then, it feels like Rodrigo's being pushed up to be part of a front two next to next to Bamford. And I think that can only be a good thing for Rodrigo if, if, if uh, Leeds are getting him into more goal-scoring positions. Obviously, he scores both goals for Leeds in this game. I was a massive fan of his in La Liga, and I would like it if we finally saw him at his, at his best for Leeds. 
Uh, so some solid start for Leeds. Not quite as good as it could have been for Leeds, but still four points from the first two games. I think they'll take that. Four goals in one game. I think Arsenal will definitely take that, Graham. Uh, Paul F. Tompkins, the comedian, has a bit in which he's bombing on stage and one audience member throws a piece of ice at him. And then the entire audience basically, like on cue, realizes, oh, yes, ice. And then they all throw their ice at Paul F. Tompkins. <laughs> And I say all that to then say, has Gabriel Jesus had a like, oh right, goal scoring? I'm supposed to do that, and I'm a go- I'm a forward who can score goals. Like, is that what's to explain how he has become a lights out world class striker? What a performance this was by Gabriel Jesus. And the thing is, if you'd watched him in preseason and also that opening game against Crystal Palace, I know he doesn't score in that game, but he still played very well. You you would have known that this sort of performance was coming. Not to blow my own horn or anything, but I, I captained him in, in Fantasy Premier League this, this week because I was pretty sure he was going to score at least one. And he does. He scores two. And then I think, does he get two assists as well? He certainly gets one assist. How but- good for you. How good for you, Graham. <laughs> We're all very, very happy. That's, I'm that's checking my fantasy I've, lineup right now to see how I did because I completely forgot about this. Keep going. Oh, Joe, come on. <laughs> You're better than that. Um, yeah, Jesus, it just feels like Arteta... Arteta deserves a huge amount of credit because it was quite clear that Arsenal needed a number nine and he clearly knew through his work at Man City as Pep's assistant that Jesus would be able to do what he needed to do even if Pep hadn't used him in that in that way at City. And just the way Jesus is, he's drifting out wide, he's creating space for himself, he's also creating space for Saka and Martinelli. I don't think it's a coincidence that they've started the season very well so he's getting more out of the, the players around him and Arsenal have just started this season very well. I mean, at this point, Arsenal fans have completely lost the run of themselves, which I would say fair enough, um, because it has been a very <laughs> impressive fans? start. Arsenal fans? No. Yeah. It's, it's, Taylor, it's been a while since they've been in fair, this situation. Fair, Remember, they fair. lost all three of their, their, their first three games last season. So I understand it to a certain ex- uh, certain degree. But yeah, there's, there's no denying that they are in very good shape right now. I would also highlight Zinchenko, another mm-hmm. summer signing from Manchester City. I will always be a Kieran Tierney stand, but Zinchenko just gives Arsenal a bit more control of the ball at left back. He's very comfortable moving into the midfield. And it ju- he just takes that little bit longer to wait for the right pass. And I think it's added to the sense that Ar- Arsenal are able to suffocate teams and keep the, the foot on teams' throats, opposition teams' throats, for longer rather than being caught out in transition themselves. So I think Zin- Zinchenko has been a very important signing for them as well. Do you think it's all just the uh, we must have passion and intensity and drawing hearts on the whiteboard that's making this result happen? <laughs> or do you think maybe there's some tactics too? Uh, I think there's some tactics and Amazon just cut those bits out for the sake of confidentiality, not to give away Mikel Arteta's secrets. But yeah, why not? Let's say it's the, the drawing hearts on the whiteboard and the playing you never walk alone over the training sessions. That's yeah. what's making the real difference. I think so. I think so. That, that establishes the atmosphere and away we go. Uh, Manchester City getting a win over Brentford. Joe, I'm going to ask you another fighting question uh, because watching this game, Erling Haaland is not... Heavily involved on the ball, uh, putting it lightly, but is heavily involved in the sense that I think the entire defense was so focused on him that it allows other Man City players to score some good goals. Um, But there's a moment every game, I'm now obsessed with this, in which Erling Haaland gets a vertical ball over the top, he is tracking that ball, and a defender kind of slams into him, either like into his back or just to the side of his back, so it's a legal challenge, quote-unquote. And with so many other players, if that's Jamie Vardy, not trying to throw shade, Jamie Vardy is probably getting knocked over because he is a smaller person or a smaller framed person. Erling Holland makes that defender bounce off. And I don't really know how you recover from that as a defender when you throw like a challenge into a blindsided 
attacker and they just continue to do what they were doing. Would you rather fight Antonio Conte or Erling Holland, Joe? That's the question we're getting at here. I think I'd rather oh, fight wow. Erling Holland. Mm-hmm. I don't think he has the same tenacity. Yeah. I know I know he's a scary dude. He's got the Buddhist thing. Yeah. I, I'm still going for Holland over Conte. Taylor, to your point about what you do as a defender when you come up against that and, and you yeah. run into Holland and he doesn't even move, I think you just retire, basically. I don't think you have many other options. I mean, it, it's going to be fascinating to watch this City team play. We get this game against Bournemouth, and it's a 4-0 win. Holland doesn't score. You kind of mentioned that already. And he scored earlier on this season. I think we're going to get five, six, seven, ten games this year where Holland, maybe even more than that, where Holland doesn't get on the score sheet or really isn't all that involved on the ball. But where his on-ball gravity, the, the, the amount of attention that defenders are forced to give him because of his speed and ability to break in behind, I think we're going to see games where that movement and that threat creates opportunities for others. And we saw some of that in this game. Holland is just an incredibly dangerous player. I've been impressed with how quickly it seems like City has adapted. I don't think they're all the way there yet. I don't think they're at the the peak that they could be at by the time this maybe the second half of the season comes around or March or whenever the World Cup throws a wrench into all this. But man, this City team is scary, just like they were mm-hmm. scary last season, but also not at all scary in the same way that they were scary last season, just scary in a whole new and different way. Is, is it just me or does Erling Haaland look bigger than ever while yep. playing for Manchester City? Yep. I don't know what it is. I think maybe it's because he's surrounded by all these yes. diminutive It's the Bernardo players. Silva effect, Grant. That's what yeah, it is. The other, yeah. My other theory is, you know how it's, um, they say like black is slimming and that like more rotund people maybe shouldn't wear like horizontal stripes yeah. or something like that? Maybe sky blue just makes people look taller, I think might also be part of <laughs> part of what's going on there yeah i was trying to think of of a phrase for this thing that i'm talking about where somebody like body slams erling holland and then they go flying uh and i think i'm gonna go with the holland wall for now or maybe it's the holland bounce but i was trying to think of a thing that like looks intimidating and foreboding and then is indeed intimidating and foreboding because it's exactly how it looks and erling holland a big fella who graham not getting many touches as i said it's what like eight touches two on ball involvements uh one of which was kickoff i think but uh still pretty involved overall well he had he he had an assist in this game so he still played a a role in, in in city making a breakthrough i there's been a lot of talk about the fact he only had eight touches and look that it's not ideal. Ideally, you would want him to be more involved, but I personally don't think it really matters because Haaland has been signed to give City another option. They didn't need that option in this match, but there will be matches where they do, like the West Ham game, and, and so that's fine. They, they, they're a more rounded squad for having Erling Haaland, and as I say, he's been signed for the games where City didn't make a breakthrough last season, and, and, and that's where he'll have a, a real influence. Speaking of more rounded squads, let's talk Nottingham Forest for a minute. They get a 1-0 win over West Ham. A great win for West Ham, a poor start, excuse me, for Forest. Very much a poor start to the season for West Ham, but Nottingham Forest continuing to sign players, and it seems like that is a trend that will continue on. Are they just going to end the season, Graham, with like 56 outfield players? I like to think, so sometimes in Football Manager, right, I will make a load of bids for, it tends to be strikers, I'll make four or five bids for strikers, and then in my settings I'll have Director of Football Handles Negotiations, and then what will happen is that I forget I've made bids for four or five strikers, and then <laughs> the window closes, and I go, hmm, this was maybe not the best use of, use of my budget. They they are kind of doing that Barcelona thing of, okay, stop, you've got you've got enough depth now, this is, this is going to become too difficult to fit this into a single team. I had fears for them after the defeat to Newcastle on opening weekend because they just didn't play anything like a Steve Cooper team or the team that we saw last season and I did wonder if maybe they disrupted too many things all at once with these summer signings but this was a lot more like it from them uh, this weekend a lot of energy 
I still think they could use more in, in central midfield, but I guess Freuler, who's coming in from Atalanta, he'll, he'll help in that regard. I thought Lingard looked decent. Owen Nii, I need to learn how to pronounce that name because I think I'm going to be saying it a lot this season. He scores the winner. He looked good. Deed Henderson was excellent and saved the penalty, which you just knew was going to happen after what happened in the Manchester United game on, on Saturday. But I've said it on the show already, I'm delighted to see Forrest back in the Premier League. It just kind of feels right. It looked like a, a great atmosphere mm-hmm. at the City ground. They sing, I always forget, they sing Mullock and Tyre before kickoff, which is, I like that as a football uh, as a football chant. Obviously, there's a Scottish element to it as well there. But um, they also have the best badge in English football. Basically, I'm a Forrest fan at this point, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Graham, uh, for... For people, not me and Joe, because obviously we know exactly what you're yeah, talking no, about. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. For the, definitely, the definitely. very few listeners who don't know what you're talking about with that chant, can you explain that a little more? Yeah, so Mull of Kintyre is uh, a Paul McCartney and Wings song. Um, oh, and okay, I'll zone play... out at this point. Cool. Go ahead. <laughs> they, play the, they play the bagpipes in it, so, um, you know, it's basically like, Oh, Mull of Kintyre. I'm not going to sing any more of it. It's a very famous song in Scotland right. because it's about Scotland and it's a Paul McCartney song. But it's good. It is honestly a very good uh, football chant. You should check it out. And it's not the branding branding song or the jingle for a company called Mulligan Tires? <laughs> well, maybe it is as well. Maybe there okay. is some uh, ingenious overlap there that some entrepreneur has manufactured, but not that I'm aware of. I do, I do have, like, I, I'm excited to see Nottingham Forest back in the Premier League. I'm excited to see them get the win. I do have some sympathy for players who helped get them up to the Premier League. And you have to imagine they're in those training sessions, just like, yeah, I'm part of the team. I might even start this weekend. And then you start to see the people coming through the door and the names linked. And if you're Lewis O'Brien and you see Hussein Awa suddenly linked from Lyon, a Champions League club, or a Champions League player, I would say. Uh, you got to kind of wonder, maybe are your days numbered? So uh, I'm yeah. assuming they will keep some of that DNA, but it's a lot what? of new faces. What's Lingard thinking? <laughs> was right? just signed a matter oh, cool. of weeks ago, and now they're upgrading on him already. <laughs> oh, it's strange times in the Premier League. Uh, strange times for Everton, who uh, failed to get a win against Villa Villa with a 2-1 to win there. Doesn't seem like we have clear ideas, or maybe Frank Lampard doesn't have clear ideas about how to get the best out of this Everton team. I would say, Graham, starting with maybe scoring goals would be a good idea. I'm I'm so worried for Everton right now. Watch, watching this game, it just kind of struck me, and I think I tweeted this out, how, how are Everton going to score goals this season? And obviously they do score a goal in this game, but it's an own goal, and it wouldn't surprise me if own goal is their top goal scorer this season because it, they just, obviously Calvert-Lewin is out injured at the moment, so maybe he makes a big difference, but even in the games last season where Calvert-Lewin was available, it felt like they were, were reliant on Richarlison to get around him and fill that space around Calvert-Lewin so he's not isolated. Obviously, he's been sold. There's reports that Anthony Gordon could be sold. And in an ideal world, I think Everton would keep hold of him. But they, they just so desperately need someone that can score 10, 15 goals in a season. So I, I would be cashing in 40 to £50 million, which is the reported fee that Chelsea are are. are bidding for Gordon and I would be putting that on a striker just because I fear that without that player they're going to get relegated I really do have that fear about them at the moment all right. Well, right now they are outside the relegation places. Uh, though they don't have any points, they're negative, I think, two goal difference. They are just ahead, although Crystal Palace have a game in hand. We'll see how that plays out uh, for them. Uh, any other business from the Premier League? I feel like we've covered every single game that's noteworthy and needs attention. I, I, you, I feel like we're maybe missing one game. Hmm? What's that? You, you've pushed this off an impressively long time, Taylor. <laughs> I honestly respect the hustle. <laughs> well, all right, Joe, talk about it. 
Yeah, so Manchester United are are doing great, aren't they? I can't think of a single thing that we could possibly have to discuss about them. Like Everything's this. good. Everything's great. A four 0 loss to Brentford. Uh, Graham, do you want to do you want to talk about this more? I don't think Taylor wants to talk about it. it I'm happy to talk really... about Brentford. I will talk about Brentford for sure. Okay, well let's give them a bit of praise before we uh, <laughs> head down a depressing path for five minutes. Yeah, I mean, I think I think watching this game and then watching the extended highlights again and seeing just how. Well-drilled they are as a team, but then well-drilled to beat this particular Manchester United. I think the, the the press, the organization, the spacing, the way they transition to defense and transition to attack, all very impressive. But then there's individual things, like the way they set up. Match of the Day did a really good breakdown of this, that they effectively man-mark when De Gea has the ball. Uh, they they press high. They've got sort of numbers high up at midfield. But then everyone is is pretty closely man-marked except for the players that they want the ball to go to, usually down Manchester United's right. And as soon as that ball is played, uh, Tony, the striker, comes in and, and cuts off, if it's De Gea on the ball, cuts off the, that sort of out pass to Maguire or to Dalot out on the right. And then from there, just the way Brentford press and make Manchester United play like against what they want to do or utilize what Manchester United want to do against them, both times that United get caught in possession early, second of which leads to the goal, uh, the second goal that is, is Eriksen basically having the ball into his feet and he wants to play this sort of reverse pass or a lateral, lateral one-touch pass behind him or diagonally forward. Uh, but the way the pressure comes, it basically cuts that pass off. And then in the for the goal, it's Jensen basically wins it because he knows exactly where Eriksen is going to turn. Doesn't even really have to gamble, just kind of steps into that space and wins the ball. And it just felt like immense preparation that Manchester United were completely unprepared for. I just, I just, as Taylor, I hear all of your Brentford analysis. I'm just mm-hmm. so distracted by all of this. By, by watching Manchester United in their University of yep. Oregon kits. Yeah. Yeah. I, I honestly don't understand what's going on there. Anyway, to circle back to Brentford, I got very distracted. To circle back to Brentford, they're, they're pressing and their ability from day one in the Premier League has been really awesome to see, right? They're coming up. They're one of the adopters, relatively early adopters of, of the real analytics movement in soccer. And they're making life miserable for teams. What a result for them, right? I mean, it's very easy to look at this from the other perspective, which I will let Graham do momentarily. But watching this team come out and play and go more than toe-to-toe, foot-to-toe, with Brentford being the foot and Manchester United being the toe, in a game like this is is just really impressive to watch. Manchester United in this game, much, much less so. Graham, what did you, what did you see from United in this game? What did you take away? Many of the same things from the Brighton game, and that Manchester United actually started relatively brightly as they did against Brentford for twenty. Sorry, Brighton in the first uh, the first game of the season, they just seemed to be so fragile as as a group where they concede one goal and you just know there's going to be at least a second goal, and obviously in this game a third and a fourth even before half time. And my biggest fear with Ten Hag is that just to take a wider look at things for a second, my biggest fear with Ten Hag is that he's going to be chewed up and spat out before he's even had a, a chance to impose anything like his, his own appro- approach on this team. This club right now, my United, is just a viper's nest. From from the issues with the owners to the lack of a, a sporting structure, which even though we were told that was in place, I have my doubts about that, or certainly whether those people in those roles have authority to make decisions, to leaks in the dressing rooms, to the dressing room which haven't, haven't stopped, to the Ronaldo saga. Why would anyone go to Manchester United at the moment? United had Liverpool on Monday night, which is a scary thought in itself for Manchester United fans. 
I, I drop every single player that started against Brentford for the for the Liverpool game. I'm 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 actually being serious about that because two games into this season, I think this season is essentially over in terms of the top four for my United already. Obviously, in terms of the raw results, you can you can lose the first two games and, and recover. But just in terms of looking how that uh, how that team is right now. I don't think they're going to be anywhere near top four. So really, it's about Ten Hag putting in place principles. And I've been watching the the Arsenal documentary, and Arteta, who by the way is a, is a weirder guy than I was anticipating before watching that documentary. But one of the things that he does well is he makes some big calls that were a risk, and and he he needed to do that to change the culture in that dressing room. He changes the captain, he drops his goalkeeper when other managers maybe wouldn't have done that. And I think Ten Hag needs to do similar because he has to be a bit of a strict headmaster right now. He needs to he needs to make a point. And it does seem like he understands that to a certain extent because he brought in the players to run 13 kilometres on their mm-hmm. day off on Sunday. The significance of this being that's how much extra Brentford ran than Manchester United in the game. And I've seen people claim that the 13 kilometre figure doesn't really reflect why Brentford won that won that match. And I think that's fair. You know, it's my United had the ball, so it was a lot of the ball, so it was natural that Brentford would run more. But but that's not really the point. It's it's a punishment with a statement attached, and it can't stop there. I think Ten Hag has to be absolutely ruthless here. I would I would drop them all and bring in a lot of the kids. I would be dropping De Gea. I'd be dropping Ronaldo. And as I say, I would I would be establishing principles that yeah maybe results in a heavy defeat to Liverpool on Monday night. But going forward from this point, will make Ten Hag's life easier. I mean, that was the hallmark of Sir Alex Ferguson. No one is bigger than the club. If they act like they are, then they can be moved on. And I agree with you, Graham. I think training with the reserves or like if they want to be malcontents, put them off to the side and let them do their own thing until somebody comes in or until they're let go for free. My only concern with sitting them all against Liverpool is that now you're throwing the young players really into the into the fire. And that could be a destruction as well. I've heard some people argue Keep that same 11, let them get blitzed again against Liverpool, and then play the kids in a game that maybe they won't be uh, crushed quite so much. I've also heard people point out that given the unrest uh, last season and in seasons past, there's also a chance there will be widespread protests for this game, and maybe it doesn't happen. Uh, So that's worth noting. Not saying I'm hoping for that, because uh, I always want to see Manchester United Play Liverpool? I guess they would play in that game, maybe, (laughs) possibly. But I I think that one will be fascinating to see if there is a response, if it is the kids. Uh, The reports that they're going to sell James Garner indicates that maybe it won't be as many kids. But uh, either way, a a lot to work on for Manchester United. Uh, Their 4-0 loss to Brentford is going to loom large, I think, in the remainder of their window, in the remainder of their season. Any other points from that game or any other Premier League action? All right, I will take your silence as a no. Then we will take one more break. We'll be back to talk about the rest of Europe and MLS. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. 
Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. Uh, we have many other games to discuss first. Graham, of all of the players we've mentioned, of all the impressive performances, they still pale in comparison to everything Malik Tillman is doing at Rangers, right? <laughs> I mean, he's doing very well at the moment. He's already got a, a, a trademark move for Rangers, so he scored a, a towering header for Rangers, the winner in their Champions League qualifier against Union of, of, of Belgium. I'm not even going to tackle that that name um, this week. And then he kind of repeated the trick against St. Johnson, and Rangers have this challenge now outside there. They have like a fan village outside Ibrox, and they've made a, a challenge of this uh, of this Tillman header where fans have to try and, and reach the same height that, that Tillman reached in, in, in the Union game and, and in that St. Johnson game as well. But he has, he's very quickly becoming a, a very important player for Rangers. And uh, despite Joe Lowry's protest to the contrary, book that ticket to Qatar, baby. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Yeah, Joe, uh, how many more goals will it take before Barcelona uh, exercise another lever to get him into their squad? It's too early for this. It's too early, it's too early for this in more ways than one. In more ways than one. Uh, let's I, uh, talk about- many levers, many levers. Too. All right, many levers. Let's talk about Barcelona, though, for a moment. Uh, they uh, played Rayo Vallecano this weekend, and based on, on the show notes for today, it seems like there is... Some disagreement between my fellow co-hosts as to how impressive a performance this was or how indicative of impressive performances this could be. Yeah, so I'll, I'll start and then I'll turn it over to Graham. So I'm the pro-Barcelona and, and Graham is the anti-Barcelona. That's being a, a little bit reductive, but we can, we can develop these points a little bit more. I, I thought Barcelona bossed this game against Rayo Vallecano. I thought they were incredibly fun to watch. They weren't quite as precise in the final third and maybe the opening 30 minutes of this game as they, they could have been. But by the end of the match, they are just dominant. 21 shots to Vallecano's four. They had the better chances and many more chances. They dominated the ball. And it wasn't just stuffy passing around the back without any real ball progression and advancement into chance creating, uh, into areas where you can create chances. It was purposeful 
accurate possession play that built through the center. Robert Lewandowski was getting some touches, dropping in a little bit as the number nine. Pedri started on the left side of central midfield, but he would float over towards the right to create a numerical advantage there on Gavi's side. And it, it doesn't end well for Barcelona in this game. It's a it's a nil-nil draw in the La Liga opener with Busquets ending up with a red card. That's not how you want to finish this game. But I just had flashes. I had I almost had these these little visions as watching this game of what Barcelona could be. I honestly don't care if Barcelona mortgaged their future. I think this team could be so much fun to watch. I already had more fun watching the first half of this game than I did any other game over the weekend. I I think this team could really be something. Now, we don't know if that's actually going to happen yet. And as I said, a nil-nil draw is not how you want to start. But man, Grim, what did you see in this team that you you didn't like? Because I thought there were a lot of really positive things from Barca here. So I think that context that you mentioned there about this team potentially could be really fun and and could be a great team. I think that maybe is 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 what colors my opinion a little bit. I was I was really looking forward to this match because I, I wanted to see how Barcelona would line up and how they would play after just so much activity this summer. And in terms of the new signings, Christensen starts at centre back, Rafinha's on the right wing, Lewandowski starts up front, Frank Kessie also comes off the off the bench in the second half. So despite all the reports about not being able to register those players they were involved. So that, that again, when I saw the, the team sheet, I was I was really looking forward to it. I just thought in terms of the second half approach in particular, I thought it was a bit of a mess for, for Barcelona. And maybe we should maybe we should expect that because after the after the all the activity and everything that's been said and done this summer, Xavi still has to mold this this team into a group and a, 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 sorry, this group into a team. And that might take some time. By the end of this match, it just felt like, so Ronald Koeman got a lot of criticism for just throwing things at the wall and hoping that something would stick. And I thought Xavi in the second half did, did a lot of this because he takes off Jordi Alba for Aubameyang, which then, and then Busquets is pushed into the back with Frankie de Jong. So you have two central midfielders playing at the back by the time this, this game finishes. Eric Garcia is playing as the left back after Alba comes off. Ronald Araujo is pushed up as the emergency centre forward and it just felt like there wasn't much of a game plan in that second half. When it became clear that Rayo were, were going to sit deep and were going to close off the spaces, spaces, and yes, they had some joy in the counter-attack as well, and I thought Eric Garcia in particular had some trouble with that counter-attack. Uh, Rayo Valcano did actually carry a, a threat in this match. But after it became clear that this is going to be a, 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 a task of breaking the opposition down, I felt like Barcelona didn't have many many ideas. And when you compare that to, to the second half of last season, when there was a clear plan and Xavi moved through things methodically and he figured out they needed a bit more width, so he brought in Dembele, or sorry, he made Dembele more of a, a key figure and Adama Traore came in and things things seemed to be very clear towards the end of last season. That This, this felt very different. And as I say, maybe he will, maybe this was always going to happen because of the number of players that have been brought in and maybe he'll do the same and he'll find solutions. And in, in fact, I expect I expect he will. Barcelona will improve on this performance. But in terms of this individual match, it, it was a bit of a mess, I have to admit, and to my eye. It does seem like they, they've made their lives difficult while making them better at the same time because like I get bringing in Robert Lewandowski. He's Robert Lewandowski. He's going to score goals. But this is the same Barca team, to your point, Graham, that last season bring in Obama Yang, who's desperate to basically get a fresh start to show that he can still play, and he responds and looks good and looks solid and seems very coachable and seems to fit the identity. 
and now you've got Lewandowski starting in his spot. Yes, Aubameyang can play other places. It doesn't seem like he wants to do that. And so it seems like they're kind of building the same situation where you've got new players coming in and you've got a very dissatisfied Aubameyang and probably other players on that bench looking elsewhere. And I, I do wonder if some of that roster construction will require additional sales. We know it will from a financial standpoint, but also from a squad cohesion standpoint, I wonder if Barca need to move on some players. They definitely can. I don't know if uh, Frankie de Jong will be one of them, but if he is, I'm guessing he's maybe looking for a blue team in the Premier League as opposed <laughs> to a red team. Uh, Joe, let's talk about David Alaba for a second. Uh, we've got a center back scoring goals. That's always worth mentioning. Yeah, so David Alaba comes off and uh, c- comes on in the second half for Real Madrid in their La Liga opener and is on the field for less than a minute before he steps up to take a free kick and just bangs it into the back of the net. I cannot think of a more David Alaba thing than just kind of strutting onto the field. Okay, maybe a more David Alaba thing would be to play four different positions before taking the free kick. But the fact that he comes on the field and and barely has a chance to get into the game, he's stepping up to take the free kick, and it is a beautiful strike. Just incredible technique, as we often see from David Alaba. And and he scores. And Real Madrid are... I, I also can't really think of many more Real Madrid things than this. It is, it is so on brand for them to just have a player <laughs> stroll on, do their thing. They pick up three points in the Liga opener. Maybe aren't utterly dominant. They were they were good in this game, but just having that be the decisive moment, the game winner from David Alaba in the seventy fifth minute, it just felt so right, Taylor. Uh, Graham, did you enjoy this one from a Real Madrid under Ancelotti doing Real Madrid under Ancelotti perspective? Oh yeah, this this was classic Real Madrid under Ancelotti, whereby they weren't particularly good in the first half, at least second half. Yes, they they were good in the second half, but there were questions about just their approach and their control of this game. They start with uh, Chumene and 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 Camavinga in central midfield. I was excited about seeing those two together. I didn't really, I didn't think it worked all that well. So Modric comes on in the second half. Eden Hazard comes on as well for for Chiumeni, which was was interesting. I kind of forgotten that he still plays for Real Madrid, if I'm honest. And they they were just a lot better at creating, particularly in the wide areas. Lucas Vasquez had a, had a real impact on the game. He was pushed higher up the pitch. But um, I also think we should give some credit to Almeria because they're they're a, a fun team to watch. They took the lead after just six minutes when Rudiger's caught out by a, a ball over the top and Ramazani kind of races through on, on goal and he scores. And, and I thought the first half in, in general was difficult for Real Madrid. Almeria just looked a lot sharper than them. Uh, Kakai was excellent. He's a, an 18-year-old Brazilian centre-back who Almeria have signed from Santos this summer. Real Madrid, well, the reason that's notable is there was a lot of interest in him. Real Madrid wanted him, Barcelona wanted them, uh, and he signed for Almeria instead to get first-team football. And I thought he was, he was excellent in this game. So Almeria... They, they're they definitely going to be down near the bottom of La Liga just due to the individual talent of their squad. But in terms of how they play the game, I think they're going to be interesting and entertaining to watch. Do you think that they will have a strong enough season to eventually supplant the Pogue song Almeria as being the most famous Almeria? Yeah, I mean, everyone's counting on that. I think that's what they're looking for from <laughs> the season. That's it. That is a successful season right there. Uh, we would assume we will have a title race in La Liga, though we only have one game played. And for some clubs, not even that. Uh, maybe less so a title race in the Bundesliga. Uh, we should know, before we started recording, we were talking about what this week's uh, The Big Thing episode should be for the Friday show. And maybe not 
just because of this weekend, but certainly this weekend was a part of our decision to ponder if uh, the Bundesliga has a Bayern Munich product, Joe. Uh, it's a problem, excuse me. Uh, it does seem like maybe this weekend goes some way towards indicating that they might because RB Leipzig and Bayer Leverkusen not starting as strongly as maybe some might have thought. Yeah, so these two teams have a combined two points, Leipzig and Leverkusen, through two match days this season. That is not what you want if you're trying to mount some sort of a title challenge against Bayern Munich. Now, it is early, right? And there's other teams. Borussia Dortmund has six points. Other teams have four. It's not like Bayern Munich has already wrapped this thing up. But also, it it really does feel like Bayern Munich has wrapped this thing up. And Taylor, I love how you segue this because we're going to talk about this a lot more later this week about what what the issues are here and if there are able if, if German football is able to fix this lack of parity because there's just none right now when it comes to the title. And it's an early but excellent example when you look at Leipzig and Leverkusen about the big teams that are supposed to be able to challenge Bayern having so little wiggle room that if they do struggle, which is an understandable thing at the start of a season, we're seeing that in, in leagues all across the world. That happens every single year that some of the bigger teams take a little time to gel. But the fact that there's so little wiggle room that now it really feels like if you fall behind in, in week one or week two, you're in deep trouble. And that's that's part of that's a good thing. I think part of that's what makes European soccer and leagues with Pro Rel so entertaining. And we lack that in the U.S. We lack meaningful games early on and really up until the end of seasons in Major League Soccer and in other leagues in the U.S. But this to me feels like we've taken it or, or German football has taken it a little towards the extreme end of things. Yeah, because it, it's... It's a Bayern team, as you said. There are other teams that have started strongly, but it's a Bayern team that oftentimes, by the time we get to December or January, or I guess they have their winter break then, but the question is, like, have they built up enough of a gap that even if they coast for a few games, will they still be able to win the title? I don't think that's what you're looking for when it comes to a title race. And for the Bundesliga, which has so many other things that are positive about it that make it one of, if not if not my favorite leagues uh, in the world— it's then at the end of the at the end of the day you're basically saying yeah but the chances are one team is going to win it and that's really it goes against the spirit of the game i think but it's also the case Manuel Veith and i have done a show previously about how Bayern Munich are this successful how they've been so good and it, i always want to point out that this is a club who certainly have financial advantages and have for some time but they're not a billionaire's plaything they don't have a ton of money behind them in that way they're not sort of just going out and buying the best players every single year. They definitely spend some money, but exemplified by selling Robert Lewandowski, Graham, and replacing him with Jamal Musiala, and then that seems to be working out just fine. It seems like they're also able to get those business decisions and those team decisions correct a lot of the time. Yeah, Musiala, I think, is worth highlighting at the start of this season because it's only two games into the Bundesliga season, but... He has been excellent in both of those games. He's got he's got three goals in, in those two games. Nagelsmann, we've, we've kind of touched on it already this season, but Nagelsmann is trying some new things with this uh, with this Bayern team. He didn't set them up in the 4-2-2-2 um, at the weekend there, but he did he did use that in, in the first game. And it doesn't really matter whether it's a 4-2-3-1 or a 4-2-2-2. Musiala is becoming very, very important to this, to this Bayern Munich team just in terms of... Um, carrying some of the the, the goal scoring burden that that Lewandowski had, so obviously with Lewandowski going, you're you're losing about forty goals a season out of your team. You're going to have to find that in other areas of the pitch, and obviously Sadio Mane comes into that side from Liverpool, but he's only going to do so much. And Musiala, I would hazard a guess, has a, has a pretty good chance of reaching twenty goals for for the season. Which for a player in his position, where he isn't an out and out centre forward, but he very much embodies what Nagelsmann likes from his attackers, versatile. 
nimble, very technically able, covers a lot of ground, mobile. So he is, as I say, he's becoming a very important player for Bayern Munich and, and a central pillar of this team. A few more quick hits from around Europe. Uh, Graham, we've got Serie A back underway. Both the Milan clubs getting wins in the opening weekend. Fiorentina and Lazio as well. Are we returning to the 1990s? Is that what the current table suggests? <laughs> we might we might well be. I mean, Serie A this, this season, I think, is going to be very, very interesting because Milan, I think, have... I know they lose Frank Kessie at the end of last season, but I think some of their business has, has, has been really good over the summer. We saw some of those new players in their win over Udinese. So uh, Adley comes on. De Catlier, whose name I'm going to have to learn to pronounce. He's a, a Belgian wonder kid, and I thought he was very, very sharp in this game. Divo Carigi is, is another player that they have brought in over the summer. So they are looking strong. Inter are looking stronger this season than last season. So they kept hold of all their kind of best players, or they have done so far in this window. Obviously, the big headline story is that Lukaku is back at Inter, and he scores 81 seconds into his second debut against Lecce at the weekend. This actually turned out to be a more difficult game for Inter, where Lecce actually equalised three, three minutes into the second half. And it wasn't until deep into stoppage time that Denzel Dumfries kind of bundles home a, a corner kick to give Inter the win. So the, the the scoreline maybe doesn't tell the full story. This was this was a squeaky bum time for Inter in this game, but they look strong this season. Roma started their season with a, a, a decent win away to Salernitana, so they're they're looking quite strong. And then Juventus and Napoli they kick off their season on Monday night, so we haven't had a, a chance to see them yet. But there's potentially, and then of course Juventus, uh, you know they, they they've strengthened as well over the summer. So there's potentially. You know, certainly four teams that I think are targeting the Scudetto this season. And then you have the Roma wildcard where no one's really sure how good they're going to be. So of all the, the leagues, there's certainly a trend across Europe of a lack of title races. Uh, we've mentioned already it's a problem with the Bundesliga. It could be a problem with, with the Premier League. City have won four of the last five. It's a problem with, in Ligue 1, but it's not a problem in Serie A. And I think that's maybe in terms of the title race, the most interesting league at the moment in Europe. Uh we also tend to get that conversation when it comes to France, though Lille recently uh, threw their hat into the ring. PSG right now, two wins from two, a goal difference of plus eight. Uh, there is obviously the headlines being made about Mbappe and, yeah. and quitting on a counterattack and how are he and Neymar getting along. Oh, and Messi also still plays there. But Graham, ultimately, it feels like Gaultier, their new manager, uh, has things moving in the right direction. On In terms of their performances on the pitch, yeah. So I hadn't seen that Mbappe story until this morning, actually, on, on Monday. So I've, I watched this PSG Montpellier game. They won, they won 5-2. I caught the highlights of their first game, which they won uh, 5-0 against, I think uh, that was Clermont Foot that they, they won that match. And basically, I'm interested in PSG this season because I want to see how Gautier is going to actually forge a team unit out of out of this group of individuals. And so far, the, 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 the signs have been very positive. He's, he's dropped uh, Messi into a more central playmaking role. Neymar has been very good. Vitinha is already a very important figure in that midfield. So if you didn't know what was happening off the pitch, you'd think PSG are, are finally cooking with gas. They're heading in the right direction. And then you have those stories about Mbappe and there was that clip bouncing around social media from the weekend where he gives, as you say, he gives up an a counter-attack when it becomes apparent the ball's not going to go to him. There's stories that he is um, actively trying to force Neymar out of PSG. Um, which just does not fill you with a lot of confidence that they're going to be any less volatile this season. But in terms of their on-the-pitch performances, they, they've, they've been good so far. It's almost like when you turn over control and every decision-making aspect to one player, that player might then get an elevated sense of self. 
Yeah, maybe. Maybe that can happen. <laughs> that is a risk with that scenario. Uh, well, that is a thing that has happened here on the Total Soccer Show because, Joe, I've obviously been talking about the Philadelphia Union almost constantly. You've refused to discuss them with me to the point of editing out the segments in which I praise them. That felt deliberate. But with this 4-1 to win over <laughs> Chicago, I'm guessing you can't ignore them anymore? Yeah, that's on me, Taylor. I, yep. I, mm-hmm. I felt wrong. It felt wrong to keep editing all of the comments about Jim yeah. Curtin's a, a really good manager. Daniel Gazdag has this great box arriving, number 10. Ura that. hasn't been maybe everything the union wanted him to be, but man, I, so I know you're high on Julian Carranza. So of course. There's, a, there's a lot here. The, the union win, and they beat Chicago 4-1 over the weekend, as you already mentioned, Taylor. It is pretty clear to me at this point that the union are the best team in the Eastern Conference. And I say that as NYCFC are slowly dropping down the, the Eastern Conference table. We had a couple of bits about uh, about NYCFC and them falling over a backfield over the last week or so. They are, they're dropping a little bit, and they haven't adjusted as well as I thought they would to Ronnie Dyla leaving and Tati Castellanos leaving. And maybe the most important thing there for NYCFC is Keaton Parks in his absence. They need someone to glue the midfield together. But the union don't really have any of those issues right now. They're scoring goals, which I think is the, the biggest question mark that I've had about this team and a lot, a lot of others have as well. They're scoring goals. They're getting production. We're seeing some of the young players play. Kai Wagner's still around at left back despite lots of reports about him being linked to at least to other other clubs over in Europe and going back to Europe. He's an excellent left back. There's so much to like about this team. They are a, a real trophy contender this year, not for the Shield, because I think that's LAFC's until further notice, but certainly to do damage in MLS Cup. They were a hair's breadth away from MLS Cup last year. They lose a bunch of players to COVID, and they don't end up making it through to oh, the man. final. But, yeah. I mean, this team can do damage, and we're seeing them do damage, and the Chicago Fire saw that firsthand over the weekend. Uh, Joe... Definitely done avoiding being thrown under the bus there. Uh, yeah, when we did our you MLS, threw yourself under the bus. <laughs> when we did our MLS review, uh, only at the very end when Joe mentioned we should probably talk about the Philadelphia Union, did I realize that I had failed to discuss the top team in the East. So apologies, Union fans. Uh, maybe uh, apologies to Austin fans, though. I think we talked about them plenty in that episode. But Joe Austin with a late comeback. Uh, that team. Like they just the the atmosphere always seems so solid. Uh, we always see clips and videos, and even yeah. when McConaughey isn't drumming on his chest, it still seems like it's a good atmosphere. It seemed like next level for this result, and it, this feels like a result that could sort of kick them on for the rest of the season. Yeah, I mean this. Austin kind of feels like a team of destiny in that it just feels like they can kind of do whatever and they still find ways to win. I don't know where that destiny is going to take them because, like I said, I I don't think they're really in contention for the Shield. Not sure anyone is besides LAFC. And I'm honestly not sure that they have what it takes to win MLS Cup, but maybe this is what it takes, right? Maybe it is 94th minute winners from the Golden Boot leader right now in Major League Soccer and Sebastian Driussi. That maybe that's what it's what it's going to take to get them there. SKC take the lead. They have an extended lead. Austin charge back and win four to three. This is a good team, and and how much they've improved from last year to this year continues to impress me. Even if I think there's still gaps in the squad, the gaps don't matter if you're coming back and finding ways to win in games like this against an improving Sporting Kansas City team. Despite how how low they are now in the table, they're still bottom of the Western Conference. But a great result for Austin. One other one other thing from MLS that I wanted to touch on from this past weekend is there were 12 goals last, uh, not last night, I guess Saturday night now, in L.A. So LAFC beat Charlotte FC 5-0. Sorry, Ryan Bailey. And then the Galaxy beat the Vancouver Whitecaps 5-2. We don't see Ricky Pouge on the field for the Galaxy in this game. It seems like the next match for L.A., I believe against the Sounders is who they've got. I think that's where we're going to see Ricky Pouge. It's a Friday night, I believe, a nationally televised game. 
I, I think that's going to be must-see TV. I, I think we're really going to see Ricky Pooch do some fun things in that game. But we don't see him in this game. The Galaxy lost five of the last six headed into this match against Vancouver, who have also improved. They've been dealing with their own little bout of COVID themselves. But the Galaxy getting a result here, I think, is massive. I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid for the Galaxy yet. I think there are still things that Greg Vandy needs to figure out. But, but stemming the tide and actually getting back in the wind column is massive for the Galaxy, ahead of a really important game against the Sounders team on Friday that desperately needs points uh, just as much as the Galaxy do. So I, I was fascinated by the results in L.A. A ton of goals scored across Major League Soccer this weekend. The last three weekends, really, even with the All-Star break of sorts, if you want to call it that, being a midweek game, have been wild in MLS. We are gearing up for a really entertaining last couple of months of the season. I cannot wait. Uh, a couple more MLS questions, uh, Joe. If Chiellini had started this game, he doesn't play in that 5-0 win over Charlotte, would we then assume that Ryan Bailey was in fact faking his cruise and just did not want to talk about his club losing to a team employed by Giorgio Chiellini, or that employs Giorgio Chiellini 5-0? 100 percent. Yeah, okay. I think that would have been enough to force Ryan into hiding. And and maybe he's still in hiding with the five 0 loss to Charlotte for Charlotte, but uh, the Chiellini thing really would have put him over the top. The, the other scenario is that Chiellini's absence can Uh-oh. be explained by Ryan Bailey having hunted oh, hunted boy. him down. He's got he got him. He couldn't stand he the a, idea he, of a cameo that we were gonna do with Chiellini. <laughs> yeah. Someone he took a break from finding Starbucks in international waters. By the way, someone explained to me how he managed to get a caramel macchiato on a cruise ship. But anyway, he took a break from that to hunt down Giorgio Chiellini before this match. <laughs> That's the only explanation. Uh, I, I, I haven't had all the TSS co-hosts uh, chipped just yet, but Ryan Bailey is. I'll check and see where he's tagged. If it's anywhere near Los Angeles, I'll let y'all know. <laughs> we'll get some people on it right away. Uh, Joe, we have not... T- t- moving quickly away from that. Uh, we have oh not gosh. talked since uh, you were at the All-Star Game. We talked pre-All-Star <laughs> oh. Game. Uh, how was that experience? Any notable things from that one? It was a great experience, and it, it reminds me of just it reminds me of two things. Number one, which is less important, is how much quality there is in Major League Soccer. Mm-hmm. You see a game with just a ridiculous starting lineup because it would never actually work in a, in a real season, but there are so many excellent attacking midfielders in this league, and in a world where attacking midfielders have largely died out, it is, it's fun to see those players start and, and start together and actually combine and create, and it was a blast watching the game. The other thing is just seeing American soccer grow. I felt this both riding the light rail back to my hotel after after both of those games, after the All-Star game on Wednesday and the Skills Challenge on Tuesday, I should say, and just riding it with other soccer fans that have come from Allianz Field. It's, it's cool to be reminded of how the sport is continuing to grow and impact people in the United States. That, for me, is hands down the best part of going to games and seeing it in person because I, I don't do a lot of that at this point. I'd like to do more, and it, it was just a great reminder of all of that stuff. Uh, Graham, the United States, first of all, Joe, that is, that's really wonderful. It's why I like all-star games and things like that, because it's just a bit more laid back. I think the people covering it are slightly less serious than the players themselves are. So too the execs and the fans just having a great time. Uh, it ends up being a really nice experience and a reminder of why that type of thing is fun. So I'm glad you got to enjoy yourself and see some good stuff. Graham, uh, my final question for you, the U.S. has citizenship, uh, requirements, TSS has honorary USMNT supporter requirements. One of them is watching at least five MLS games before the World Cup occurs. I know you will do that. I know you've probably already done that. But are there any teams that you would prefer to watch or are excited to get to watch as we lead up to the World Cup? Not even for USMNT reasons, but just because uh, you have to for U.S. purposes. Uh, who, are the, who are the teams, who are the players you would like to keep an eye on? So Austin in general this season, that probably doesn't come as as much as a surprise. They 
have been on UK TV quite a bit. And that's one of the challenges that I face is that the, the picks for British TV tend to be the LA Galaxy, NYCFC and Inter-Miami. Those tend to be the teams. Sometimes you get an LAFC game. Um, actually, I didn't watch any MLS this weekend because all the kickoffs seem to be exceptionally uh, exceptionally late on that, on that Saturday night. I think the Red Bulls Orlando game was the only one that I potentially could have could have watched um but yeah austin, austin with a jerisi and I, i'm a really high in what josh wolf is 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 doing with that team and then it's kind of difficult just to ignore the star power that's going on in, in la la at the moment between bale and chiellini and ricky puge and and everything there so th- those are kind of the teams also toronto just because they had such a a, a difficult start to the season and obviously bob bradley going there and, and you there were questions against Bob Brad- Bob Bradley whether he was going to be able to turn them round, and then obviously the Italian superstars have arrived, and that has started to to happen. So maybe no surprises there with some of the the teams that I've highlighted. But when those games are on TV, those are the ones I tend to gravitate gravitate towards. Yeah, Toronto winning three one over Portland with uh, uh, Jonathan Osorio and then Insigne and Bernardeschi scoring the goals. That feels like a thesis statement of what they're going for this yeah. season. So well done, Toronto. Well done, Graham Ruffin, for all your contributions today. I enjoyed them immensely excellent show my friend thank you taylor rockwell joe lowry the same to you my friend and thank you as well for writing my attempts to throw you under the bus and many other strange uh transitions oh you got it and thanks for not chipping me yet i i I think that's generally good so that's a big point for you (laughs) my pleasure as well my friend (laughs) listeners thanks so much for joining us uh the three of us will be back tomorrow to talk some americans in action until then we'll talk to you soon 